You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Hi guys, I'm Katherine Griffiths. And I'm Stefania Romeo. And you're listening to This Life Explains It All, Vera's podcast. So today we're talking about something that's been on our minds a lot lately and maybe yours too, kind of sparked by watching The Social Dilemma recently and thinking more about how our use of technology and social media impacts our mental health. So In exploring this topic, we brought on an expert in the space. We're talking to Teodora Pavkovic. She's a New York-based psychotherapist, parenting coach, and international speaker who specializes in utilizing principles of emotional intelligence and positive psychology to facilitate digital wellness. And we're asking her all of our questions about our use of technology, about the space, and we're all sharing our observations from the film, The Social Dilemma. It's on Netflix. You may have seen it. Yeah, this conversation is so good and thought-provoking. And Teodora works with children and adults in her private practice. And I think it's really, her research around children is really interesting. She delivers workshops and trainings in schools and corporate settings as well, and speaks on expert panels and at conferences around the world. She's a member of the Digital Wellness Collective. She is the co-chair of Parenting Professionals Group at the Children's Screen Time Action Network and an advisory board member of several educational and mental health organizations. She is committed to helping individuals and groups preserve and protect their well-being and relationships in this increasingly digital world. It was really interesting for me to think about, to watch this film through the lens of my experience of working at a big tech company in Silicon Valley. And certainly while you know my experiences at Uber is not the same as the social media companies and companies built on advertising, essentially, where the similarities, where I could draw lines of similarity was that the strength of a lot of these big tech companies is that they have built teams and build teams that can laser focus on a goal and make it happen. So I got to see that at Uber firsthand. And I totally love and believe in Uber and I believe in the gig economy and I'm, I'm on their side. But I make that comparison because I think that there's this culture that gets built around big companies like that and innovative companies like that around the focus is on making the impossible happen. And continuing to innovate and raise the bar. And it's really the innovation that's celebrated. And sometimes there's not so much of that, like, okay, let's take a step back and see how 
are we really impacting people in the day to day? And I think that in the exploration of the social, in the social dilemma, they explore just that, like, okay, they have all this, this, some of the smartest people in the world building these products and creating them. And on the inside, it's all about, look how we've innovated, look how we've made the impossible possible without always that, like taking a step back. Cause there's really no time for that. If you want to keep innovating and building. Yeah. Now I think that the intention was never to make it a harmful thing to people who are using the products or using the platforms. It's that, yeah, it's like what you said is that innovation and it is, I think social media, just speaking for social media, I feel like it is, it does do a lot of good, great things in the world. You can stay connected. You can follow so many inspirational accounts. You know, there's so much that you can do. And I think it's about changing it. And we talk about this a little bit in the episode, but changing the perception of it that to these platforms have so much power over me to I have so much power over these platforms and I can control how I use it. But yeah, I think, you know, the innovation is there, but you don't always... And the intentions are always good, but because these are so, the, all of these technologies are brand new. Uber, you know, social media technologies are brand new. We don't know the effects of them, and we actually probably won't know what it has, what it's doing, or what it has done for even years to come. Yeah, yeah, and I realize that if if anyone's not already familiar with the documentary. Essentially, the the tagline of the documentary is that it's tech experts sound the alarm on dangerous human impact of social networking. So that's a little bit of a alarmist kind of uh, tagline, but essentially people who've worked at the big tech companies, particularly centered around social media and search engines, are talking about the experience and talking about how we can take a step back and say, okay, what's the human impact of this and what can we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I noticed that, and I think watching the documentary brought more awareness to my own behavior with the platforms. And I can see myself endlessly scrolling a lot lately. And when I watched the documentary, it just reminded me that I am, I mean, I, I knew that I was doing that. And it's not like it's necessarily a bad thing, but I was doing it a lot more than I would like to be. And it's, and, you know, I was just finding myself thinking, what could I be doing? What would I be doing if I didn't have this device in front of me? And, you know, would I be more creative or would I like read more books? Like, what else could I be doing that's not just scrolling? Am I getting anything out of this? So it made me think a lot about my own usage. And one of the things that I have been doing a lot is looking at my phone first thing. In the morning, I still do a meditation or a workout first, but then the next first thing I do is look at my phone. So that's something small that I've just made a promise to myself. You know what? Just don't look at it in the morning. Look at, do something else. Go and maybe wait until 12 p.m. or when you have a break in the day and then look at it and just see if anything changes. And I feel like the first thing I've noticed is that I just feel like I have more time. Like I'm getting ready faster because I'm not sitting for a long period of time just scrolling. So that's my own behavior. And I am being more conscious with it and just making sure that I'm not just endlessly scrolling for periods of time and that I'm being really conscious with it and consciously following people also who inspire me and being really attentive to that. Yeah. So Teodora talks about 
a lot of the research behind and some of the findings behind why these things matter and why they're important. One of the things that stuck out to me and that I've been thinking about after, as she mentioned, and she talks all about from childhood up through adulthood, what we can do now, but also what may have impacted us as children and what could impact children now. And one of the things she says is that children need to have a a memory, some level of recall of how to interact, play, and behave without the social media and without the screen. And the longer we can delay use of social media dependence on screens for certain things, that's better for the development because the recall of how do I actually do this and what's this experience supposed to be is really, really important. And it made me think about something that happens every time I am home visiting my family and staying at my parents' house. So, you know, I'm like many of us, I always have my phone with me and it is pretty often by my side and I look at it a lot through the day and continuously becoming more thoughtful and conscious of that. But when I go home and I visit my family, I tend to leave my phone in my bedroom and I won't look at it for the whole day. I'll even forget that it was there. And it's this weird phenomenon because I really don't look at it at all. And when she said that, I thought, I wonder if that's my recall of what I once did in that home. And I know how to be in that space and in that home without a phone. Because the last time I lived there, I didn't have an iPhone and I didn't have you know the access and the behavior that I have now. So I thought that that was really interesting and something maybe even to think about now. Can you train yourself that way in certain spaces? Yeah, definitely. Because it's a lot of it is habitual. You know, like, okay, the, the day is ended. I'm going to grab my phone. I'm just going to scroll, see what everyone's up to. I do that a lot. And it's just habitual. It's not even something... I mean, it's like, you know, drinking alcohol. Like you can stop, but it's a lot of times it's the habit that it's like I'm going out to dinner. So that means that I have a drink or I'm doing this. I have a drink. So it's kind of, you know, this a similar thing. But it's interesting because with kids growing up with those devices, and I think that we've talked about this before, if you're always grabbing something to pass the time, then there it doesn't leave a lot of room for creativity and for, yeah, like just creativity, imagination. We've talked about before, yeah. like all of those those things that we had because we didn't have phones and we were playing outside would be interesting to see what happens with that and how that changes because it is a really addictive behavior to be just grabbing that as soon as time passes. Yeah. It's like we can forget how to just be alone with ourselves or just be bored. Okay. Well, we're going to get into all of this and a lot more with Teodora. We love this conversation. So let's get into it. We're talking to Teodora about her personal story, how she got into this work and why she's so passionate about the digital wellness space. She has a really interesting journey and story. She's lived in nine different countries in her life and considers herself to be a third culture person. We also talk about her involvement with the creators of the Social Dilemma documentary and her biggest takeaways. We talk about research around babies and technologies, the effects that it has on teenagers and social media and mental health, how we are actually in control over the platforms and we have the control over how we use it. And it's more about educating ourselves and acting accordingly, which she talks a lot about in the episode. And she tells us one thing we can all do to build a healthy relationship with social media and technology. 
All right, let's get into it. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to have this conversation with you. Before we get started and really dig into the meat of the conversation, can you share with us a little bit about your background and how you came into doing this work? Sure. So my background is primarily in psychology and and psychotherapy. So I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology, and I've been trained um, to do what we call talking therapies with people. So really helping people figure out their um, emotional, psychological well-being, issues with identity, issues with mood through conversation and you know through conversations of, of different kinds. So I've always been interested in people. I like to call it brain picking what I do for a living. And the kind of the, the digital wellness component of it came a lot later and, and a lot more recently. So around 2016 was when I started becoming increasingly interested in digital wellness and the impact of technology, primarily through kind of my entry point really was through children and, mm-hmm. and my interest in what technology use can potentially do to child development. But really my primary question was around the parent-child interaction and what happens if you essentially obstruct the pathway from the child to the parent and vice versa by inserting a, a device uh, between the two. And so I was starting to uh, to just make a lot of observations all around me. I was living in, in Singapore in Southeast Asia at the time. And I was just starting to make a lot of observations around either just the parent or the child or both of them at the same time being connected to their device and disconnected from each other at times when they would normally probably be interacting in one way or another, or if not interacting, just kind of sitting quietly next to each other. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was what sparked that question for me. And then of course that extrapolates into us as adults as well. What does it mean in terms of our connection to each other if we're not entirely connected to each other, but we're kind of connected via via devices. And so that has kind of sparked a lot of the work that I've been doing since 2016. Wow. Wow. Before we dig into some of our questions for you, what brought you to Singapore? Um, Was there anything in your personal journey that you feel like has connected with this work and and why you're interested in this work? Yeah. It actually didn't have anything to do with that. So it was the slightly a kind of slightly random confluence of circumstances, I guess, I guess, which um, a lot of my kind of life travels have been that I'm a third culture kid and I've lived in uh, nine different countries at this point. So the U.S. is the ninth country I've lived in. And Singapore was the one that I was at previously. I originally just went to visit a family member who was working there. And it was one of those, um, oh, I'm just going to be here for about a month. And then eight years later, you think, oh, right. Remember when I just wanted to be here for a month? So, so it was one of those random, random stories that really started off completely by chance. But while being there, so I was there between 2008 and 2016, a lot of things changed both mm-hmm. on kind of the, the personal and, and professional fronts in my life. And, and it was really my experiences there that led me to, to the work that I'm doing now that eventually led me to, to move to New York City with my husband. So Singapore was one of the, the biggest and best accidents in my life. That's, that's how I like to, uh, to think of it. I think that when we connected before this, you mentioned that you had some connection or involvement with some of the people who put together the social dilemma. Am I remembering that correctly? And can right. 
So I'm part of one organization called the Digital Wellness Collective um, that brings together uh, a lot of professionals with all sorts of different backgrounds that are in this space. So through that organization, I've had some connections with some of the people who who appear in in that film. I've spoken at a conference um, that Tristan Harris spoke at as well. This was um, last year in uh, in New York City, and then. Two weeks ago, the Digital Wellness Collective organized a virtual event, which consisted of, of two panels to discuss the social dilemma. And we had Jeff Orlovsky, who's the director of the social dilemma, who spoke at our event. So I had a chance to connect with him there as well. So, so there are a lot of those, those different little kind of connections throughout this space, which is something that, that also gets me really excited to be working in this space, which is, you know, digital wellness and, and humane technology, uh, responsible technology, you know, the interplay of kind of mental health and AI and diversity and inclusion. And there are just so many different elements that really all come together, both on kind of more macro levels, which is really what the Center for Humane Technology looks at. So, you know, if you're talking about, you know, speaking to Congress and and trying to create change on that kind of macro level, um, all the way down to organizations like the Digital Wellness Collective, where we really try to look at how can we kind of create change sort of from the bottom up. And then I'm also involved um, with a few other organizations such as the Children's Screen Time Action Network, where I co-chair the Parenting Professionals Working Group. Um, And that is another organization that really primarily looks at children um, and how children are exposed to technologies, how they're also exposed to commercialized technologies and, Mm -hmm. and trying to really find ways to create some change there from the perspective of parents, of educators, in all sorts of, of different settings. So, so I like to think of us as kind of one big happy family. I'd say happy for yeah. sure. <laughs> what was your biggest aha moment or takeaway from the social dilemma? I guess in that digital wellness field in general. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because a, a lot of us who who come from this field, I think, are you know we're already familiar with a lot right. of the things that were that were brought up in the film. And again, because we are, you know, one big community. I've heard again Tristan, um, who I mentioned before. I've I've heard him speak live. I've had the chance to meet him. I've I've heard him at you know congressional hearings. So I know a lot of the things that he talks about. So. And I know that uh, Jeff, the the director, has said that a few times so far, that there were many, many more hours of interviews with many, many more people um, that couldn't all fit in in that one and a half hours that that the documentary goes on for. But I think there were a few things. One of the things was at one point... Tristan talks about what kind of how we define a tool or, or how we look at what a tool is. And he talks about a tool as being something that kind of um, sits there that is useful and that waits for us to then utilize it, right, in, in whatever way we see fit. Um, and that that's where there's a very significant difference uh, when it comes to the, the forms of technology that we use right now, because they're not just sitting there quietly asleep waiting for us to pick them up. They want something. They kind of, they, they demand something and they kind of, there's that push and pull and poke and, and prod and trying to get us to, to kind of use them and consume them and, and communicate through them in specific ways. So I think that that was maybe one of the most important kind of little ideas, little seeds that have stayed with me. I think another one was when the comparison was made between Google kind of as a search engine and Wikipedia as a search engine. Mm-hmm. And this question came up of, imagine if Wiki, you know, Wikipedia at this point looks the same. It doesn't matter who 
access it, right? You, you've got that landing page. It looks the same for everyone. You put in a search term, it looks the same. What if it was highly, highly specifically individualized for every single person who accessed it, which is in a way, not exactly, but it's along the lines of what happens with Google, right? I think one of the most mind-blowing things for me is the fact that you know the three of us could go onto Google right now and we could enter that search term, you know, climate change is, and all three of us would probably see slightly different answers to that or, or completions to that sentence, depending on where we live, depending on how we've used Google so far, right? So the data that's been accumulated. So, so I think th- those were a few of the kind of most impactful things that I took away from that uh, documentary and that I've been thinking about, about a lot since. Yeah. What feels like it's more in the collective awareness is, okay, like the impact of comparison, scrolling, looking at your social media all the time and the impact that that can have from the perspectives that I just mentioned. Yeah. But what it really illuminated for me was this reminder that like, hey, you actually are the product and without being dramatic, you are, this is a one of the biggest forms of exploitation that you can mm-hmm. imagine. And how does that change your perspective and how does that change your perception? And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Like, yes, mm-hmm. this is in one of the things in the documentary, you know, if, if you're not paying for the product, you are right. the product. And so mm-hmm. how do you create boundaries mm-hmm. to protect your mental health, your mm-hmm. outlook while recognizing that like, okay, I want to use this for what's useful, but not allow myself to be exploited or, or used. And I think that in other ways where it's more obvious, we can get really fired up about it, but in this way yeah. is, is not so obvious. And so that's one of the biggest things that I've been thinking about hmm. with this. Absolutely. Yeah. I think like you said, there are certain more, again, kind of macro, more global aspects of this. They're just a lot easier to notice and a lot easier to pick out. And so it's, it's things like the fact that you know your Google searches will look different depending on where you are. So that, that I think is something, it's, it's um, an indisputable fact as, as far as I'm aware of it. And it's something that we can very easily pick up on. Um, I think the whole conversation around AI and inclusion and diversity, again, there's a lot of research looking into algorithms and the biases that are built within them and what the outcomes are of that. And so one of the examples that's given, not in, in the main body of the documentary, but in a couple of the bonus Materials that we were able to uh, to watch as part of our event. There was one algorithm, and I don't know what company uh, this was at. I don't think that information was revealed, but the algorithm basically predicted that white men by the name of Jared, who are very good at lacrosse, would be the best employees at that particular company. Because of course, you know, they were looking at historical data, and, and that's mm-hmm. a lot of the times, you know, that's how these algorithms are built. Um, this whole uh... idea of kind of prediction, right? Of using historical Mm -hmm. data in order to predict the future, uh, which I feel like really fits into that whole concept of history repeating itself. We are literally doing that, you know, right now with the way we're building our algorithms. So those are some of the more, you know, like you said, the more visible aspects of some of these problems that we have with, with tech. Once you start going into the mental health arena, and you start looking at some of those aspects of it, that's where it can get very messy. And that's where it can get a lot more difficult to really tease apart cause and effect. We haven't actually successfully done that yet. So, you know, you and I, before this, we're, we're talking about research in terms of the impact that our technology use has on our mental health. And I was saying that, you know, there are some studies that have indicated certain 
kind of consequences of using technology either too much or, you know, not using it in the best of ways. But we're far from being able to say that definitively social media use causes depression or social media use causes, you know, self-harm behavior. Some researchers do believe this. Others dispute this and, and say, you know, we can't, we, we mustn't mix up when two items are kind of related to each other and when one item actually causes another one, you know, those are two separate things. But like you said, you know, we, I think most of us intuitively understand that when we compare ourselves, for example, to somebody else on Instagram or, or on Facebook, we really don't feel good. Now, you do it once or twice, you know, it doesn't really matter. Life is full of not feeling good, um, especially in, in, in 2020. So it's not that big of a deal. But if you're a very frequent user of Instagram or whatever the, the platform is, and you're, you're on it very, very frequently, then you're not just talking about a kind of occasional emotional experience that you have. You're talking about a mood that you're in then predominantly and most of the time. And so in that case, you know, this whole conversation around, you know, is, is tech to blame and is social media to blame? For me as a, as a psychologist and a psychotherapist, I don't actually care about who's to blame all I know is that if a person comes to me and says using Instagram doesn't make me feel good, that's all that matters to me. So that's what we're going to address then. I don't care if it's Instagram that needs to be blamed or big tech or Congress or you know whoever. Um, the <laughs> bottom line is, is that interacting with this particular platform in the way in which it's built and in, in the way in the kind of the language that we use when we're on it is detrimental to that particular person. And we know, again, from a lot of kind of observations and anecdotal information that a lot of people do experience that. And so in that case, you know, the solution doesn't have to be, okay, you know, uninstall it, get rid of it, you know, take your profile down, don't ever use it again, unless, you know, a person specifically wants that. But it's really about looking at, okay, what, you know, what is it about this that, that you don't like, or that doesn't make you feel good? What are some of the assumptions that you have about the way this, about the way you're supposed to interact, right? Because each one of these platforms have these, like I said, they have these languages built in, and I, and I mean the algorithms. But you know, we know that LinkedIn is a place in which we communicate in one way, and then we know that on Instagram we do it a different way. On Facebook we do it another way. Snapchat is different. TikTok is different. And so we've all adapted these languages and we use them to communicate with each other. And not everybody maybe wants to use that particular language. And so part of my work, if I'm working with an adolescent or I'm working with a parent or a family or, you know, delivering a talk or a workshop is really to get people to think in terms of, do you like this? Do you feel good when you're on it? How does it make you feel? And if you don't like it, and if there are things you wish were different, let's see how we could change those things. And let's see how you can change the way you interact on these platforms. Sometimes it's really as easy as just changing the people you, you follow. And this was actually a little piece of research that was done by a woman's charity I think last year at this point, I wanted to say a few months ago, but COVID has destroyed my sense of uh, sense of time. I think it was last year, but they basically got some teenage girls to not change anything else about their Instagram, but just to follow a few more women who worked in the fields that these girls were interested in. So some of them wanted to follow Michelle Obama. Others wanted to follow women who were um, athletes, scientists, whatever it was. And they found that just by following these women within a period of about two weeks, these girls' moods significantly changed. And not just that, their perception of social media completely changed where they said, you know, I didn't actually know that this was something I could use it for. I thought it was just for like, 
you know, sending pictures with my tongue hanging out and, Mm -hmm. you know, sending messages to my friends. Like that, that's what I thought this was about, but oh my God, I can follow Michelle Obama and see what she's doing on a daily basis. Or I can learn about the advances women are making in science, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But the bottom line is that, you know, if we're not happy with the way something makes us feel or or how it impacts our mental health and our mood, I think we should feel empowered to change our behavior then around that. And and that's what a lot of my work focuses on. And like I said before, you know, the the Center for Humane Tech is trying to do it one way. Those of us who are more, more kind of in the coaching world do it in a slightly different way. You have researchers at universities doing it in different ways. I feel very hopeful about that. I feel like there's a very big community it's really trying to address this problem from from a lot of different angles. Yeah, I, I love that. I think it, it's like the conscious consumption. And that's something that exactly. I've been a lot more focused on as well. Who do I follow? Are these people that I aspire to be or you know, just inspire me? And I'm really conscious about not following people that maybe don't inspire me as much. So mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. One of the surprising things to me and something that I have recently become aware of is how notifications and even going on the platform first thing in the day can actually change your entire thought process throughout the whole day. And even though I thought that it... I was like, I'm not affected by social media at all. I'm just going on and it's fine. I actually started noticing after I watched the documentary that Mm -hmm. it does. Like I, Mm -hmm. I saw like a whole string of my thoughts completely change and they were completely different just because mm. I went on social media and I saw something that good or bad, it still changed the course of my thought process. So I yeah. found that to be really interesting and also really scary because <laughs> you have this technology that can just completely change your thoughts. Yeah, so. exactly. It's something and it's something that comes up again in, in, in the film. It's this concept of of these very kind of subtle ways of changing your your perception or your thinking or you know mm-hmm. whatever it is and you know again most of these platforms at least when they were first being built out didn't necessarily do this intentionally you know they didn't mm-hmm. they didn't go okay you know we really want to amplify a conspiracy theory thinking so so let's figure out you know how we can best do that so it's not it, it I don't think that aspect of it is is what we should be focusing on but we do need to understand that you know who you decide to follow and what search terms you put into Google, then decide what you're going to see next. That that's a really important concept. There is no kind of neutral platform out there, right? A lot of the times, and I and I think that's really empowering. We actually feed it, and so, mm-hmm. for example, when a lot of these conspiracy theories around COVID, I mean, they're still around, but when they first started coming out. I was just genuinely curious about them and I wanted to know who are the people coming up with these things, what are they saying and so on. And I wanted to punch in some search terms into Google and then I went, you know what, actually I don't want to do that because that's going to affect a lot of things that I'm going to be seeing afterwards because Google doesn't know whether I'm doing this kind of for academic purposes or whether I'm doing this because I'm a conspiracy theorist and I, you know, I genuinely believe some of these things. Of course, we have to remember that Google owns YouTube. And so if you use YouTube, that will be impacted as well. And YouTube, in fact, is one of the most problematic platforms mm-hmm. when it comes to this because, and I don't know if they've, if they've changed their algorithms enough, but up until last year, about 70% of what you were watching on YouTube was a result of recommendations. 
It wasn't a result of what you actively put into the search term, right? So we all know on the right-hand side that you get a bunch of those recommended videos. Mm -hmm. I always talk to parents about this in particular because it can be very problematic if your child is, especially if they're very young, if they're kind of left alone on YouTube, um, just kind of looking at videos randomly and endlessly. You'll get those recommended videos on the right-hand side and, and those are all there based on how the algorithms work, right? And how, how they've been built with this kind of assumption that you're going to want to see more of what you initially came there for. But of course, there've been so many stories of how that just kind of spirals out of control very, very quickly. And there was one, I believe she was a New York Times journalist in 2016 during the previous election who kind of wanted to put this to the test. And she created two separate Gmail accounts for herself. So two separate YouTube accounts as well. And in one of them, I I think she just simply put in Hillary Clinton, something like a a gathering or or tour or, or something like that. And did the same for Donald Trump on the other side. And within about three or four videos, she noticed that on both ends, she was starting to to get exposure to more and more extreme views coming from both the left and from the right. So it really doesn't kind of even matter where you're at or or whether you type in, you know, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or, you know, I don't know, Paw Patrol or Peppa Pig. It doesn't matter. You're going to get into more and more extreme versions of whatever it is that you've typed in. And I've had plenty of parents say that their children, sometimes as young as four years old, started watching Peppa Pig and very soon ended up seeing pornographic versions of Peppa Pig that were very kind of smartly and neatly hidden there so that that the algorithm couldn't detect it, the platform couldn't detect it and kind of flag it. So these are some of the things that are involved in, like you were saying, greater consciousness of how we use these platforms. We have to remember that they're not perfectly neutral, which is a scary thing, but I do think it's also incredibly empowering because our behavior feeds these algorithms to an extent as well. And so who you follow, what you click on makes a really huge difference. And recently I saw somebody was online referring to the fact that, you know, these huge tech company giants and the people who run them are kind of like the, they're sort of like the government officials that we never even voted for. Mm. Um, And my view is that we did vote for them. We vote for them every time we use their products. We vote for them every time that we click on, you know, what, whatever it is on their platform. So we actually have a huge amount of power here. I think that's one of the most important mm. takeaways for me and something that I always try to share with people who I talk to. We can actually impact these things a, a lot more than we, than we actually realize. Mm. We hope you guys are enjoying this conversation with Teodora. We loved getting to chat with her and all of the mind-opening information that she shares. While we're talking about our digital wellness and our wellness as it relates to our use of technology in this episode, we're also always thinking about our physical wellness as well. For me, that has been a lot about getting my gut health in check and really taking care of inflammation in my body and my digestion. One of the products that has been transformational for me in getting my gut health in check and helping me to stay healthy is the Sakara brand probiotics and doing the Sakara meal plans periodically once every month or once every couple months. The probiotic and the Sakara meal program is incredible for gut health, inflammation, immunity, 
and skin radiance. And while skin radiance wasn't originally why I started integrating these into my life, I've been getting so many compliments on my skin lately. If you want to try the probiotic or the meal program, you can use our code XOVERA for 20% off your first order, which is a really nice discount, especially for the meal program. They have the level one program, which is totally doable and easy for anyone getting started and the level two, which I'm going to be doing in October, which is a week-long level two detox to really target inflammation, find food sensitivities, and really reset the body. If you want to try it along with me, use our code XOVERA for 20% off. Now back to the episode. I want to talk a little bit more about your research and some of the work you do with parenting and small children. I think there's lots of debate on both sides of what is the right thing to do. But one thing I want to go back to on the research, something that came to mind as we were speaking, a couple of different things on the research front that I'm wondering if you can share your thoughts on. First, I think one piece of research that is pretty well known and, and prevalent, although I don't know all the details behind the source, is that we receive the same dopamine hit from that scroll, from getting that notification from our social media as one would from drug addiction when you get your hit of cocaine or sugar addiction. And so I'm really curious if if you have any more insight into that to speak about it. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece that I'm curious about and that came to mind is we talk about the research and saying, well, we know there's correlation, but we don't have that linear causation yet. And maybe it doesn't matter. But I think a lot about, because I've seen this in the healthcare system so much and actually used to work in in healthcare marketing where who's paying for this research is something to be questioned as well. So, you know, one maybe comparative example is I have some dietary things and I'm gluten-free. And when I first Mm -hmm. came to know that like, huh, why isn't there more information? Now there is. But when I when I first found out, I was like, why isn't there more information on this or that this is a mm-hmm. thing that people should look for or do? And, and doctors said, they were like, well, because there's no money to be made on the solution. The solution is just don't have it. So there's right. no money to be made. And I make mm-hmm. that comparison because it makes me think of this. So there's no money to be made on a solution or maybe in bringing more light to a watch out. So who's really going to fund this? So I wonder your right. thoughts on both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We could talk for hours about that. I think (laughs) those are, those are really big questions. So to begin with kind of what I alluded to before was that there isn't really an agreement in terms of these platforms that we're using are a huge problem. Now that I said using, I I thought back to another point in in the social dilemma Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of people have taken away saying that the two products of which the consumers are called users are drugs and and technology or social media. So that's a kind of, it's an interesting idea. I think people can take it how they want to, but I think it's interesting. There isn't a really unified kind of a consensus in terms of technology is addictive or, you know, we have no control over technology or these platforms are trying to intentionally hook us, addict us and so on. I personally don't like using the word addiction because of my background and and addictions are, we usually tend to use that word for very serious dependencies on chemical substances for the most part. But you're right. A lot of the research does indicate that we do get that rush of dope, 
dopamine, sometimes adrenaline as well when we interact with, with a lot of these platforms. And that's not by accident. Um, so again, for those who've seen the, the social drama, they probably would have noticed that a lot of the guys who, who speak in the documentary who were interviewed actually studied at Stanford. And Stanford has a persuasive technology uh, lab through which a lot of these guys went through. And what they're taught there is, is different aspects of behavioral psychology. So different ways of, of kind of forming habits, creating habits, and kind of reinforcing different types of behaviors. So one of the things we have is the infinite scroll, for example, right? So that's something that I always encourage parents to talk to their kids about before their kids start using tech. You know, how are you going to know where the end of Instagram is? How are you going to know when it's time to put Facebook down if there's no end to it, right? And, and there's no end to the internet either. So that's one element. Another element is the, the refresh, the pull down to refresh. And that's something that Tristan Harris spoke about it at the congressional hearing that he talked at, I believe that was last year. Um, you know, so you pull it down, you get that little thing spinning around and you're looking at it and you're waiting and you're waiting. The tricky thing with dopamine is that dopamine isn't only released when we're experiencing pleasure, it's released when we're anticipating pleasure too. So before you've actually seen that like, you've kind of um, pulled the screen down, it's refreshing. Dopamine is already being released because you're thinking, oh, did I get that like or did I get that comment? Was it shared five times or five million times? You know, what, what's, what's going to happen? So, so dopamine is a very tricky brain chemical. Technology, you know, neurotechnology has become incredibly advanced, but we don't still know enough yet to really be able to say, you know, yes, the exact same amount of dopamine is released when you, you know, refresh your Instagram as when you take a, a hit of, you know, whatever the drug of, of choice is. But, but there are definitely overlaps and there are parallels in terms of how a lot of these neurotransmitters work. And like I said, a lot of these forms of design, it's called persuasive design, were created with that in mind. So, you know, I, I want you to stay here and I want you to interact with this platform. Um, another thing I always say to parents is Fortnite wasn't created for your child to play for three minutes and then put it down and walk away, forget about it for a week and then come back afterwards, right? It, you're meant to stay there and you're meant to engage, you're meant to play, you're, you're meant to do, you know, all the things that the game's designed for. So yes, you'll definitely see that kind of dopamine effect, if, if that's what we can call it. When you use technology with very young kids, parents will, will report that all the time. They'll say, my kid becomes this monster. When they're on their device or after they've used their device for a certain amount of time, especially if it's very intense, immersive gaming, you know, I don't recognize them afterwards and I can't talk to them. I can't reason with them. I can't have any conversations with them because, you know, as soon as I come in and suggest that, you know, okay, we need to put this down now, they'll just have a, you know, a complete meltdown. And so this, this has again, been observed in, in a lot of different families. I don't know if research around that in particular has been done, but again, for me, like I said with that, you know, like I brought up with that example before, I almost don't care who needs to be blamed or who, who gets to be blamed. If the person comes to me and says, listen, this is my struggle that is what we're going to address, you know, regardless of whether it's a big conspiracy theory or not. So when it comes to that, we know that there are definitely ways in which these technologies impact our behavior. We don't have, like you mentioned, longitudinal studies just yet, but there are a few that are ongoing and that are taking place now and that are looking at children, that are looking at how much tech they consume. And these researchers are going to be doing different kinds of scans um, in order to see, you know, are we able to see changes in the brain? Because that's really what we're after. That's what we really want to be able 
to see. We want to be able to look at kids based on not just how much of the tech they're using because the concept of screen time, except with very, very young children, has kind of become outdated. We need to see what they're actually doing. And we need to see, you know, how immersive is it? How engaging is it? Uh, Is there a social component to it? Is it just very passive consumption? Is it mindless scrolling? Is it creative? Are they learning how to code? Are they learning how to communicate better? Are they learning how to problem solve? Are they actually learning something? Is it educational? And so on. Um, And then after some time goes by, we want to say, okay, the kids who did a lot of this seem to have experienced these changes and, and you know, these other groups haven't. Once we... Um, hopefully have that research in. I'm again, very excited about it because I hope that at that point we can be a lot more specific in terms of the advice that we give to parents and that we can really make some more uh, kind of more global sweeping statements just for the purpose of of being able to reach more parents and, and just to make it a little bit easier for them and for their kids to engage with these technologies in a healthy way. Yeah, I think with the kids um, and parents piece is really interesting. And this is the first generation. I think that they said this in the documentary as well, that to just grow up with technology because we didn't didn't grow up. We grew up taking notes and writing notes to each other and didn't have cell phones until we were much older. I'm so, so (laughs) happy. Me too. I do not. Yeah. Yeah. Like you don't know yourself yet. So I feel like being able to handle any sort of ridicule or a negative comment. You just don't have that confidence yet to be able to do it. So now we can be, you know, as adults, we can be conscious and we can look at certain things or not follow certain people. But when you're a kid or a teenager, you just, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to. Or even like if you're not invited to something, how that is and you see it all over the place, like absolutely, that that breaks my heart thinking about that. Oh yeah. Oh, me too. Me too. Absolutely. And actually I, I just watched another documentary yesterday that I have just started recommending to people almost kind of like a double dosage of the social dilemma and this one, and it's called Childhood 2.0. Um, and it was produced by a company or a platform called Bark that is really involved in, in online protection of children and their personal data. So they're, they're a very popular platform with, with parents and they, um, they produce this film where they really focus on teenagers, younger and older teenagers. And a lot of the documentary, again, it's about an hour and a half long. A lot of it involves them interviewing these kids and having them talk about things like, what happens when you see that someone's been invited somewhere? Or what happens if it's a picture of the six of you and one person isn't tagged in that particular picture? You know, what happens when you have a bunch of pictures and, um, you know, some of them didn't get as many likes as others? Are you going to delete them? Or are you going to leave them on? So things like pornography, things like how do kids express to each other that they like each other? Do they date? How do they meet up? What do they, you know, all these different questions. And you kind of, you hear the kids themselves telling you that this is how it works. This is how we communicate. This is what we do. This is how we wish it could be different. This is what we want more of. This is what we want less of. So that, that's one thing I really recommend that people uh, watch if they haven't seen it yet. And if they've seen The Social Dilemma to then watch this one, because I think this one is a really wonderful uh, illustration of what it actually looks like in practice. So how these kids are actually using their devices to, like you said, figure out who they are, to communicate with each other again, it's this new kind of language or, or communication style that they're that they're engaged in. And for me, what you know, you, you were saying, you know, we all remember what it was like to not be on these devices. I think for me, 
personally and professionally, that's one of the things that worries me the most. It's, it's the fact that, you know, if we talk about taking some time away from tech or taking a little break, detox is a word that sometimes has negative connotations. So I tend not to use it, but you know, if, if that's what a person feels that they need, and if I'm coaching an adult, it's very easy to tap into that memory of what was it like when it wasn't there all the time? Or, you know, what did you do when you didn't have it on you, you know, constantly? The generations that are coming up now are going to have no memories of that. That's going to be non-existent. There's going to be no reference point for what do I do when Snapchat isn't there? Or what do I do when Netflix isn't there? And that for me is one of the most worrying things because obviously it's a lot easier to you know, to refer back to something if you've actually experienced it yourself. You have that muscle memory, you have that brain memory, you have that emotional memory, you know what that was like. Whereas now, understandably, if you go to a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old and you go, you know, switch off YouTube and do something else, they'll go, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> what am I supposed <laughs> to do? I've never done anything else. So, so yeah. and, and that's where we get into a little bit of that difficult situation where the solution isn't really to just go and say, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pulling the plug, although some parents do that too, because they have no memory. They have no reference point of what else can we do. So it, you know, it needs to be balanced out. We don't want to create this vacuum where, you know, we, we unplug them and then there's nothing there. There's, there's no ideas for what can be done. It's much easier, first of all, if tech use is delayed as much as possible, especially things like social media, because their brains at 13 are not ready for that, regardless of what the platforms say. So there have been articles written about these ages of you know 13 and over that were chosen kind of arbitrarily and, and don't necessarily make a lot of sense. At 13, they're not prepared for social media. We're not prepared for social media as adults a lot of the time. So as much as you can delay it as a parent, it's really great. And as much as you can give them those reference experiences of doing things without the tech, you really are setting them up with an incredibly important skill, not just for for when they're adults, they're going to need it when they're 13, they're going to need it when they're 16, when they're 20, when they're 22, when they're going to need to have a little bit of that reality check and kind of step away from whatever the kind of the reality on social media is and, and tap back into the reality of just kind of human connection. Um, So I I really think that's one of the most important skills that we can teach younger generations. Yeah, I love that. Just delay it as much as possible. I'm sure it's hard for parents too, because then every if if other people in their class have it, then how do you how do you navigate that? What do you see with babies? I remember I know that you mentioned it earlier on that when a parent and a baby has a phone in between, then Mm. it can cause disconnection. What have you Mm. seen in that area? Yeah. So there's been some really interesting pieces of research done there as well, looking at toddlers. And one of my my friends and, and colleagues, Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari, has done some really wonderful research at State University of New York in New York on something called the still face paradigm or the, or the still face experiment, which is a really old experiment that was done to show how babies react when their parents are instructed to just keep a very still face and not at all change their expression based on what the baby is doing, right? Because that's the baby's really primary form of connecting and attaching, right? It will make noises. It will make bubbles with its mouth. It will sound cute. It smells good. It'll make little faces at you. And of course, your impulse is to then also react, right? So much of our emotional intelligence and empathy is really focused on our face. 
Uh, we have more than 42 facial muscles and we use all of them. So in the original experiment, parents were instructed to just not react. Um, and of course, very quickly, you see the child becoming very distressed because that's their way of trying to engage the parent and the parent is just non-responsive. So uh, what Tracy did with her team is she set up a similar situation, but she instructed the parents to play with their toddler for a little bit and then to pick up their phone and to just keep looking at the phone. So no matter what the child does, no matter how they try to reach out, just don't respond to them, right? Just stay on the phone. And Diane Sawyer actually did a, a segment on this last year. So people can check this out because they did a few kind of demonstrations to see what that looks like. But again, you see the same thing. You see the child becoming incredibly distressed, trying to reach out to mom, trying to call her, trying to explain, mommy, we need to go. Mommy, we need to do something. Mommy, you're not listening to me. Mommy, you're not looking at me. And they just kind of, you know, they get increasingly distressed. And I love that study because I think it, it just did an incredible job of, in a very simple way, showing what happens when you're distracted, when you're just simply not there. Now, of course, the argument sometimes is, well, you know, it, it's a phone, but it could be, you could be reading a book and completely ignoring the part. You could, you know, there, there's so many other things. And, and that's true. It's not just that object that can do that to you. The problem is that a book is rarely that immersive where it literally pulls you in where you have no concept of anything <laughs> else that is going on around you, right? So so that's that's part of the problem. These technologies are very immersive because they're designed to be very immersive. Again, that's not by accident. And so we're seeing that when it comes to kids trying to reach out to their parents, but we've seen it in other ways as well. And so there was another study that was done recently, I believe in Seattle, but I can't, I can't quite remember right now, where they had kids play with what you would consider to be old school kind of traditional toys, wooden toys, things like that. And then they would have their parent call the child's name and, and see how the child would react. Again, very small kids. Some of them weren't even walking yet. And then they would give them a tablet. Um, and they would have them play, again, some kind of a, they would either watch a video, play an educational game, whatever it is. And then again, they'd have the parent call the, the baby's name and see how the baby would react. And you're probably guessing what the results were. So when the child was playing with a, with a very old school type of toy, you know, mom would call out their name and the baby would, you know, turn around and as a way of saying, yeah, mom, what's up? When they were playing with the tablet, sometimes the mom would have to repeat the child's name a number of times in order for the child to actually, you know, raise their head, look over, and then make that connection. So yeah. we're seeing those, you know, pretty significant kind of levels of distractedness caused by these technologies going both ways. So it's bi-directional. And a lot of the really wonderful research that's been done by organizations like Common Sense Media has shown both kids and parents complaining that the other side is kind of non-responsive and absent-minded and, and not present and all the rest of it, right? So this isn't a children's problem. This isn't an adult's problem. This isn't an individual's problem or community's problem. This is everybody's problem, right? We're all in this together in that sense, and we're all impacted by it equally, whether we do or don't have you know kids of our own. So like one of the things, for example, that I started doing a couple of years ago in New York is oftentimes when I was on the subway, I would notice a little child kind of looking at the people around them, kind of cooing, smiling, again, trying to connect. And all they would see when they'd look up is adults on their phones. Mm -hmm. And so what I started doing is every time I would get on a subway, if there was a child there, if there happened to be a child there, when I got on, I would put my phone away and I would make eye contact with mm -hmm. that child. So 
I see this as being everybody's responsibility. I don't think yeah. this just rests on the parents. I think it's, it's, or the educator or, you know, whoever it's all of us. And we're all getting very distracted by these devices. Like I said, there are other objects out there. There are all kinds of stimuli that will do similar things to our attention, but because of the way in which these devices are built, the fact that there's so many apps and platforms in, inside of them, everything is inside of these so-called smart devices, right? That was kind of, that was the aim with which Steve Jobs created the smartphone. He wanted it all to be there in that one device. And as brilliant as that is, it's kind of a problem because mm-hmm. we end up being sucked into that and kind of distanced and distracted from the people who are around us. So so those are some of the, the pieces of research that I always like to share with parents because again, I think they they very simply, very kind of matter-of-factly illustrate what happens when you're kind of engaged with that device and when your family member is there. It, it does oftentimes lead to that disconnect, which is also why one of the things I always recommend to parents is to try and co-use technology and co-view as much as they can, especially when you're talking about very young children. So some of the research that's also been done here, here in the U.S. has shown that children's vocabulary will be a lot better if you watch videos with them and then you engage them in conversation and you ask them about the characters and, you know, what do you think happened next? Or why do you think this happened? What happened to this character in the past? And you just you really try and kind of stimulate them. Otherwise, again, it's just a very, very passive consumption. So we want to try and make sure that while we're using these devices, we're not kind of uh, becoming alienated from each other, especially within the family unit. So we've been talking about a lot. You've shared so much of the research and what we're seeing. What would you say is one thing you would want every person to take away from this conversation in terms of something that they can do or not do when it comes to our use of technology? And I think about that both with all of the social media that we've been talking about, but also the fact that we're just in front of screens all day long. What would be your top kind of recommendation or thing to think about that's always the hardest question is that I want to launch into a one-hour yeah. webinar or a workshop anytime somebody asks me that. Something that I share with people usually towards the end of my, my workshops is that your attention and your information are really precious resources. And if you think about them as that, you're going to be a lot more mindful and thoughtful and conscious in terms of how you're sharing them and with whom you're sharing them or on which platform you're sharing them. And so that's maybe, it's a little bit of a, maybe kind of a general statement, but I think when we, when we think about it, it plays out in, in our daily lives in, in a very concrete way with every email that we send, with every text that we reply to, with every person whose photo we like or every video that we watch or every post or GIF or meme that we share, you know, whatever it is, all of that is our attention that is going in all these different directions. And I like to share that concept with people so that they can think about their engagements online. I'm not just talking about social media. The Social Dilemma, for example, really focused, I mean, solely really on social media with the exception of a a couple of other mentions, maybe. For, For me, it's much, much wider than that. It's to do with smart speakers. It's to do with email. It's to do with texting is to do with ed tech. It's to do with just so many other things. So, but really if we, if you think about your attention and where your attention goes 
throughout the day, I sometimes kind of overwhelm myself when I, when I think about it that way, when I, when I think just how many kind of things I've liked or sent or shared or, or consumed. And a lot of people in my space like to use the concept of a food as a nice parallel. And that's something I use with parents. But I think just for us as, as adults, even if you don't have kids, it's a great way of thinking about it. If you, if you think about your engagement with technology as consumption, um, right, you're consuming content and you're putting things out there and, and think about it in terms of a, a kind of healthy diet, uh, you know, a healthy digital or a healthy tech diet, you know, what is kind of the the nutritious value of the stuff that you're taking on, of the pictures that you're looking at, of the people you're following, again, of the content that you're sharing, um, and also the stuff that you're putting out there. So I, I define digital wellness as both that give and take. We need to think about what we put out there because it affects other people. And we need to think about what we consume because it affects us. So so I, I would get people to think in terms of that, to, to become a little bit more mindful about where they direct their attention throughout the day. And then if they also get overwhelmed by the amount of attention that they kind of give out, to think in terms of how can they change that a little bit and how can they improve on that a little bit, again, for the sake of their own well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. love that. Well, there is one question that we ask all of our guests. Um, because this, the name of the podcast is called This Life Explains It All. Um, and that is, what life experience has been your greatest teacher? That's a difficult question also for me. And I think <laughs> probably because of my upbringing and the way I grew up. So if I could kind of use that, it's, it's a little bit of a kind of categorical kind of answer, or maybe it's like a whole category. But I think that the fact that I grew up as a third culture kid is the kind of the life experience, the, the fact that I've been able to experience life like that as a, a kind of globetrotter, I think has had a huge impact on me. And, and especially for, I think my, my capacity for empathy and understanding, which of course, both are incredibly important in the work that I do. And I think that's probably part of the reason why I do what I do. The fact that I grew up with so many different people of so many different backgrounds and religions and customs and traditions and um, ways of, of living and ways of being and ways of practicing religion and marriage and you know so so many different things I think brought me very early on from a very young age to a point at which I realized that there is no one right way of doing anything. There's there's no right way of living or praying or marrying or raising children or, you know, anything really, because it kind of depends on who you ask. Everybody has their own different way of doing all of these different things. And I think for children growing up, it can be an incredibly nourishing experience to have, to be exposed to different cultures, because I think that really, it it kind of does what reading books does. It takes you out of yourself and it puts you into somebody else's life into somebody else's shoes. And it gets you thinking about how there's so many different ways to, to feel and to think and, and to be and, and to act. And I think that that's probably been the most kind of important life lesson or, or life experience for me is that because of the way I've grown up, I've been able to, to step into a lot of different shoes. And you know, some of them were more comfortable, some of them were, were less comfortable, but I've loved that whole journey because it's really expanded my view of the world. And just on a, on a personal note, it's, it's helped me a lot when I've had struggles or questions about things or issues, because I could refer to all these different 
people and say, well, maybe they would do it this way or, you know, they would do it that way. Why don't I try that out? So it's just been a really expansive, a really, really enriching experience. I'm just incredibly thankful, just incredibly thankful for it really. So beautiful. I feel like I could talk to you about that for hours. I have (laughs) so many questions about your experience. So we'll have to do a part two at some point. Sure. But thank you so much for this conversation. If people want to find you and your work, what is the best way for them to do that? Sure. So the easiest way to do it is just to visit my website, which is topcoaching.com. So that's T-E-O-P-coaching.com. They'll be able to find information about my background and and what I do and, and how I do it and find out all the different ways in which they could, they could work with me. And again, like I said before, I work with individuals, with kids, with adults. Um, I speak at companies. I do consulting around digital wellness, kind of building up digital wellness, whether it's products or, or workplaces. So yeah, so I'd love for people to reach out. And then you know they will be able to find me on social media as well, which I try and use as, as mindfully as I possibly can. It's definitely a challenge, but I am present on most social media platforms. So, so that's another, another place to find me. All right. Well, we will link all that in the show notes. Thank you so much. All right. Well, we hope that you enjoyed that episode and we gave you a lot to think about. There's certainly so much information in that episode. So let us know what you think. I'm Catherine Griffiths based in Sydney, Australia. And I'm Stefania Romeo in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show.